Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. Today, I am continuing in our series on soul care, and uh, we've been starting every week with this. Hello, my name is Chris Kipp. And I'm broken. I'm really broken. Today, uh, I want to talk about a particular part of our brokenness in terms of our identity. Identity. Our identity in Christ. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. This teaching has been one of the most profound and powerful parts of my growth as a disciple in in Jesus. It it has been life-changing for me. And so... um, I share this with you, and, and it'll probably like have a lot of passion connected to it because it's been so transformative for me, and I absolutely believe it will be transformative for you if you can live out of what we're going to talk about today. Um, the question I want to begin with is, what do you see? What do you see when you see you? What do you see when you see you. You see, our identity is a complex mix of thoughts, feelings, and attitudes that we have about ourselves. It's what you believe, keyword, what you believe to be true about you. What you believe to be true about you. That's your identity. In week one, we we looked at the fall of man and how in Genesis we see the very first consequence of sin was self-consciousness. They immediately looked at themselves like, oh no, right? And they're they're, they're, grabbing fig leaves and sewing them together to cover themselves because the very first consequence before being put out of the garden and away from the presence of God and the curse of work and the curse of relational stuff that we see in Genesis. Before all that, the very first thing was an immediate brokenness in the soul that just saw itself in a different way, right? It was, it, it was a, a consequence of sin in our brokenness. The classic illustration is a mirror, a mirror, right? And uh, have you all ever been in public somewhere and there's a mirror there and maybe it's a restaurant or someplace like that and the lighting is just different and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh dear God. Have you ever felt that way before? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the lighting in our bathrooms may not be quite like the lighting in that restaurant. And all of a sudden, you're seeing some things, and you're like, oh, gosh, you know, like, for men, there might be some, like, random hairs that you're finding, and you're like, oh, gosh, like, I, I didn't even see that before, right? And you know, there's things that alter how we see ourselves, things that alter how we see ourselves. And when it comes to our identity and how we view ourselves, what we believe to be true about ourselves, there are lots of things that color how we 
see ourselves. For some of you, that might be like the word rejected. Like when you look at yourself, what you see is rejection and probably because there's been wounds in your life where some things have happened to you and you felt rejected and it happened enough times that it's like, that's just what I see when I look at myself. Others of you, it could be unlovable. The word unlovable, it's like uh, over that mirror, I'm just seeing that, right? My family member, my parent, my first girlfriend just totally betrayed me, walked away from me, neglected me, abused me, and I'm just, I feel unlovable. Some of you, it could be the word failure. Like, I've just, over and over again, I just, I just fail. That's how I see myself. Others, it's the word loser. It's like, it's like you just always have lost at everything, and it's like that's all you see when you see yourself. Inadequate. You're like, man, I just, I just don't have what it takes. Ugly. Right? Maybe you had somebody say that to you or make you feel that way. You're just ugly. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you see just the word stupid. It's like, I just feel dumb. All these other people know stuff I don't know, and I'm, just, I'm dumb. Maybe it's shameful. I've got a past. I've got a story. And when I, it's not that I, I know like God forgives me, but I just feel so dirty. Shameful. Maybe it's the word hopeless. Like, I don't, I don't even know what the point is anymore. I just feel hopeless. When I look at myself, I feel like there's, there's no upside to this. Maybe it's the word Ruined. Like, man, my story is just so jacked up. My past. If you, if you knew, Chris, I'm ruined. Or for our millennial friends, I put one in there for you. It's this. Um, the best thing since sliced bread. Right? You look in the mirror and you're like, dang. Wow. Thank you, Lord. So good to be me. So for millennials, you are probably raised by parents, most likely, that were aware of trying to help give you a positive self-image. And so you're like, mom and dad think I'm awesome. And then you got your first job, and your boss didn't feel that way. Right? You're like, I'm probably the best thing that's ever happened to this organization. And then you get that first performance review, and you're like, I don't think they feel that way about me. Uh, my confidence has outmatched my competence. <laughs> or maybe it's the word better than. You're like, man, I don't, I don't feel all those negative words. I think I'm really, really awesome. And there can be an arrogance, uh, almost a narcissism that comes out of not seeing ourselves correctly. It's a mistaken identity. There's a book called The Search for Significance. I highly recommend it. You probably can't find it. My copy is from 1987. It's falling apart. I love it. And in the book, he says that there's this main lie that our, um, our broken identity is always trying to find worth somewhere. And the lie is this. Your self-worth equals your performance plus others' opinions about you. Your self-worth equals your performance plus 
others' opinions about you. And all the words that you just saw on that screen are probably a mixture of either I feel like I'm not doing very well, my performance is terrible, or people have said some things. I, I, I feel like this is how people see me, and that's what I see when I see myself. It's my self-worth. The performance part is easy. It's how you think you're doing. Yesterday, my son, um, he was getting frustrated playing a video game, and then he asked to go do something else. It was like a, you know, it was going to be like a 40-minute drive, and then, you know, money and time, and then it's going to be like a whole thing, and he wanted to do this so bad, and then we said, no, we're not going to do that, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Like, no, we can't do that today. And he just loses it. And we're like, why are you so emotional about this? And he said, if I can't be good at video games, maybe I can be good at something else. What's going on inside of him as an elementary school student? It's the very same thing that happens to most of us is we, we want to find the thing that we're good at. Because then our worth will be secure because our performance will be good. And we can finally feel good about ourselves, our performance. The second part is the other's opinions. I mean, why is it that you could get nine encouraging words today, right? I could come up and, and we could have all these people say nine encouraging things, and then one person would say something terrible to you, and the only thing that you're going to think about when you leave here is what? The terrible thing, right? You will totally, that one negative comment will erase all nine positive comments, because we so depend on other people's opinions to make us feel worthy. Like we have self-worth, that we have value. And it's part of our mistaken identity. We live in a culture that's a winner-loser culture. It's a beauty-slash-ugly culture. And everyone's trying to figure out where they stand in all of that. That mistaken identity will lead us to a misshapen identity. And you've probably been to a carnival before and you've seen the funny mirrors and there's some that like stretch you out and make your legs look real short and your head, you know, real long or, or all the other types of mirrors out there. And it's like just the little curve in the mirror makes everything look so different. It's like a little bit of distortion in the glass will totally change how you see yourself. In the same way, when we have all this stuff kind of coloring how we view ourselves, we kind of have this distorted view, and it emphasizes one thing, and it de-emphasizes another thing about us, and, and it's misshapen. In our identity struggles, we try on other identities. You know, so-and-so seems really cool. They seem really confident. I'm going to be like them. We have the copycat identity. We have the, the ways that we identify more with a political party than with Jesus or with a denomination of the church than Jesus. It's what leads to groupthink because a lot of people are kind of looking to each other to like figure out where do I stand in all this and, and who am I with and are we winning We have the identity confusion in our culture around sexuality. 
And someone is dealing with all these issues and the culture and the demonic influence comes along and says, well, it's because you're gay. That's why you're struggling. You're, you're a man trapped in a woman's body or you're a woman trapped in a man's body and they're going to literally try on another identity to see if that works and brings a sense of value and worth and happiness to their life. And all of us are trying to make sense of what we either see or don't see when we see ourselves. It's operative in all the systems of the world. It's operative in all religions of the world. And this is what I believe, well, there's multiple things. This is one of the things that I believe makes Christianity so distinct and so different and such profoundly good news is that we have an actual workable alternative to the lie that my self-worth equals my performance plus others' opinions about me. Oh, and by the way, many churches can operate on that lie right there. We'll praise you when you're doing all the stuff we, we, we want you to do. We'll tell you how awesome you are. But as soon as you don't do all the things that we like you to do, we're kind of like, ah, you know, I'm going to back off of that person. We can send the same message. We can operate on the same worldly value system. And it's not of Jesus. It's not of God. It's not kingdom. And so today I want us to look at identity. And we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 3. If you have a, a copy of scriptures and want to go there with me, it's going to be Luke chapter 3. And what I want us to do is to trace identity in the life of Jesus. I found this to be very, very fascinating. Before I do, uh, when I was in college, we had this guest pastor come in. He was much older than us. And he taught about this um, French monk named St. Bernard of Clairvaux who lived around 1100, like early 1100. And he wrote um, about the four degrees of love. Have you all ever heard of St. Bernard of Clairvaux? No one? A couple of you? Awesome. So I love church history because you unearth such incredible thinking and thought of people that have gone before us. And here's what he said. The first degree of love is love of self for self's sake. That's a, a self-centered love of self. That's how we all kind of default into the world. Like, I'm just trying to take care of myself. Okay? The second degree was love of God for self's sake. And maybe for you, when you became a Christian, this was how it started. It's like, I'm in trouble. Lord, help me. Jesus, I need you. God, help me. I, I love you because you're helping me. Love of God for self's sake. It was a self-centered love of God. The third was love of God for God's sake. It's when you grow as a disciple and you just begin to see how good God is and then you just begin to love God not because he does anything for you. It's like he, he allows you to walk through hardship and some difficulty and some struggle and he's kind of weaning you off of your self-centeredness and you just begin to love him for who he is. And you're like, ah. Oh. Even if, even if my whole life falls apart, Jesus, you're it for me. I just want you. Love of God, for God's sake. And I, I would stop right there and be like, that is the, that's it. That's, that's maturity in Christ. But then he adds one more, and this was what shocked me. 
It was love of self for God's sake. And I heard that and I was like, what? Love of self for God's sake? What he's saying is that there is a God-centered love of self. That is, he would say, the height of Christian maturity. And here's, here's what that means. There's a way for us to see ourselves through the cross of Jesus. Does that make sense? If Jesus says, you're my beloved child. But when you look at yourself and you don't see beloved child, you see everything else. He's saying there is a step of maturity where you say, I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to believe what you have declared through the cross of Jesus about me. This is my identity in Christ. Let's, let's look at this in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22. We're just gonna be kind of skip through these moments in the life of Jesus. This is the baptism of Jesus. Here's what it says. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. So there's this physical manifestation of the Spirit coming down like a dove. And it's not just like only Jesus saw this. Like everyone sees this happen, right? And a voice came from heaven. Hear this. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Did you hear what just happened right there? Jesus has lived in obscurity for 30 years at this point. We know he's been sinless. We know he was probably learning the family trade of being a carpenter, but all we know is that he was born in a miraculous way and then just kind of fell off the map for 30 years and before he does anything Messiah-like, healing the sick, casting out the demon, preaching with authority, raising the dead, before any of that happens, the voice of the Father says, you are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. It's a moment of identity. It's a Trinitarian moment. The Father speaking. The Spirit descending on the Son. <laughs> There's a, a, a phrase that we hear from other disciples when they said, hey, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And they go, can anything good come from Nazareth? Meaning like it's tiny village that has a terrible reputation. Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, meaning he wasn't really good looking. He was probably very plain looking. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. So 
the scriptures are telling us that by worldly metrics, Jesus did not have um, all the things going in his direction. He, he, the, de- the deck was stacked against Jesus in terms of the worldly metrics that we think about of a winner or a loser or pretty or ugly or all that kind of stuff that we identify with. And instead, what we have is the Father speaking a word of identity to the Son. And it has nothing to do with any of those things. The principle is this. Our true identity is God-given and not self-generated. The point is, Jesus lived from his identity, not for it. And there's a massive difference between the two. Most of us are motivated by proving something about ourselves. And it's why we secretly do all the stuff we do. We're trying to prove something. But Jesus lives from. So he, his ministry begins after the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The lie of our day is that your identity is down deep inside of you. And if you'll get enough counseling and you'll dig it all out, then you'll figure out who you are. There's a nugget of truth in that, that that your personality is God-given and you're going to learn who you are over time. That's gonna happen, okay? But the truth is that identity is bestowed upon us by someone who has the authority to bestow it. Number one, your creator God. And Jesus lived from that identity, not for it. For example, I hear of parents now who will not use a gender-specific name with their child. They don't say boy, girl, son, daughter. They say my human being, my little human. And the reason is, what they're saying is like, who am I to tell you who you are? Who am I to tell you? that you're a son or a daughter because gender is in here, not you know, between your legs. Friends, that's a dangerous idea and it's a very new idea in terms of philosophy of earth and I, I think the jury's gonna be out for about 30 more years on the effect that has on a, on a young person but let me tell you this, we were not designed to discover ourselves and then tell everyone, here's who I am. We were designed to receive an identity from an authority figure that has the authority to speak it to us. It's why the words or lack of words from your parents have such a strong impact on your life. You were made for this. You were made for a heavenly father who could say, you're my beloved child. You're my beloved child. Our truest identity is bestowed. Living for your identity is to ride the roller coaster of the lie that my self-worth is about my performance and other people's opinions. But living from your identity is to embrace the truth that self-worth equals God's truth about me. Second thing, 
We're going to look at the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4. Why don't you, uh, if you can, thumb over there with me real fast. Matthew chapter 4. So um, Jesus is baptized. He's immediately led by the Spirit. Okay, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. And during that time, Jesus is tempted. He's tested by the evil one. And this is a fascinating um, moment in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. It says, then the tempter approached him, talking about Jesus, and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse four, he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's fascinating about this moment is that the voice of the father has just boomed over this place where they're baptizing and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And here we are just a month or so later in the wilderness, in the weakness, and the tempter says, if, if you are the son of God, if that's really who you are, prove it. point is that the temptation of Christ was an assault on his identity. That's what's happening. Really? You are the son of God? I mean, I know the father said that, but really? Prove it to me. Satan cast doubt on his true identity. And here's the thing. Satan does the very same thing to us. He wants you to take all those words that we had on on front of the mirror and say, prove you're not that to me. Prove it. You're a winner? Prove that to me. You're worthy? Really, prove that to me. And the enticement to break the moral law of God is not just uh, break the moral law of God. It's, it's deeper in that break the moral law of God to prove something about yourself. Hello, how many, how many affairs happened because somebody came along that, um, who, who sort of answered whatever it was on that mirror that I felt so bad about myself, and that person treated me in a way that felt like I was worthy again. And so the enticement wasn't just to sin in adultery. It's that I needed something. I needed to prove something about myself. Over and over again, if we will trace back the the sin areas, the struggles of our lives, what we're going to find is there is something underneath an identity issue that we have not resolved with Jesus. a satanic assault on our identity. The principle is that finding your identity in Jesus, in Christ, is crucial to gaining freedom over sin because uh, that only works for so long. Does that make sense? 
When you're tempted in whatever way you're tempted and you're like, oh, that's wrong. I know the Bible says it's wrong. I'm not gonna do it anymore. That only works for so long. And then you have to start digging into why do I wanna do this all the time? I was listening to a podcast this week uh, featuring John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in the Portland area. I think he's done some amazing work. And he's been reading the Desert Fathers, and he um, found a work by Evagrius Ponticus. And this was a, a Desert Father who had kind of removed himself from a church that was largely um, compromised, which we see these movements in history, a compromised church. There's a sect or a movement that's kind of like calling everyone back to, to the truth. And he wrote this book in the 350s, and this is fascinating title, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. <laughs> wow. Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. I mean, and this, the ancient desert fathers and mothers viewed spiritual warfare like this. If you are the son of God, prove it to me. They viewed it as a war in your mind to believe truth over lies. And they would use this passage of scripture, the temptation of Jesus, as the template to understand spiritual warfare. And that there's always these thoughts that are being sown into our minds that are going to point back to all those little sticky notes on the mirror of how we see ourselves. And it's going to continue to form us into this idea that we've got to prove something about ourselves and we will do all kinds of crazy stuff to do it. And this also tells me that the most dangerous Christians to the kingdom of darkness are Christians who have learned to root their identity in the cross of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? The most dangerous Christians to the kingdom of darkness are the ones who have learned to see themselves through the cross of Jesus. And I'll show you why. Third point, neither success nor failure could derail Christ's mission because he was rooted in his identity in the Father. Do you hear what I'm saying? You want to be dangerous for the kingdom of light? Get this. When you understand that your worth is not rooted in your performance or in other people's opinions about you, you are free. You're free to fail. You're free to succeed. You're free to take big steps of faith and do stuff that you're typically scared to do because you're trying not to be a total loser. But when you understand this, now you're free to do things because you've unhitched your value, your identity, your worth from all the worldly metrics and you're rooted in the cross of Jesus. Some examples of that are Mark chapter five, verses 39 through 40. It's, a, it's an incredible passage. We don't have time to read it all, but Jesus is um, out ministering one day and a man who's the synagogue leader, his name is Jairus, comes to him and says, my daughter's very ill. Would you come and, and heal her? Come lay your hand upon her and she will get well. Jesus is like, sure. 
And then he walks a little bit further, and a woman with an issue of bleeding touches his hem, and he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Power just went out of me. Like, who just touched me? They have that whole encounter. Finally, Jesus, who's been delayed by another healing, gets to the house, and everyone's wailing and crying. And he walks in and he says, she's not dead. She's asleep. And the scripture says this. They laughed at him. Think about that. Have you ever walked into a room full of people and said something and everyone just started laughing at you? And not just laughing, they go from wailing and mourning to like, ha ha, what an idiot. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm gonna wilt like a leaf and turn around and leave and be like, okay, I think I missed that one. I must have missed what the spirit was doing, right? Because everyone just laughed at me. Mocking could not deter Jesus from doing the Father's work. Because they could laugh at him and he could be like, I'm his beloved son. He's well pleased with me. And I know what he's doing right now. Another example Jesus goes to his hometown and he teaches in their synagogue. This is Matthew 13. And they're thinking, like, where did this guy get all this wisdom and all this? power. They're, they're impressed. But then they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? We know who you really are. We know your mom. We know your brothers. And they were offended by him. That's the whole, what Jesus says, a prophet is uh, not without honor except in his hometown or in his own household. And it says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. You see, Jesus was able to stay rooted in, you are my beloved son, even when others said, you're just the carpenter's kid. He had a sense of identity. Friends, if you're gonna follow Jesus wholeheartedly, there are going to be people, some of them might be in your own household, and they're gonna say, I know who you really are. I've watched you your whole life. I know you. And I, I'm not buying this whole life transformation. And you're going to need a sense of identity in Jesus in that moment. Another example, <laughs> the great moment there's a, a, a whole town has come to the door. Jesus is staying in a house and it's after dark and everyone comes and he's doing all the healing and the deliverance and the teaching and it's like, whew, things are going really, really well. They finally made it. Like, you know, things are looking up for the disciples. The Messiah is being very Messiah-ish right now and it's really awesome. Successful day of ministry. And the next morning, Jesus is missing, and they're like, where is he? Well, he's gone off to pray. They find Jesus and say, look, everyone's looking for you. This is it, man. We're, we're going to get the platform. You know, Peter's putting the sound system together. Like, this is the moment. Like, reveal who you are. And Jesus is like, let's go. I have other villages to go preach to 
means the favor of the crowd could not deter Jesus from fulfilling the Father's mission. The principle is that finding your identity in Christ will keep success from inflating your head and failure from crushing your heart. And I want to raise up dangerous believers in Jesus. I want to be a dangerous disciple of Jesus. That's not going to happen until we are rooted in our identity in Jesus. Okay, so let's diagnose this. How do I know if I've misplaced or mistaken or misshapen an identity? Well, I think it's pretty simple. This is going to sound like an incredibly wide-sweeping statement, but just follow me for a second. Any place in which you are anxious, depressed, touchy, addicted, compulsively driven, prideful, or critical, reveals that you're looking to something other than Jesus for your sense of identity and worth. Really, I believe that. Any place, any place where you're anxious, hello, depressed, touchy, addicted, compulsively driven, prideful or critical, reveals that you're looking to something other than Jesus because when your soul is broken, your soul lets you know. And all these things begin to come out. I want to close with this. A friend of mine did something really unusual one day. He was one of my best friends in college. Uh, he and his wife had gotten married just a little bit before Casey and I got married. And his wife was the most amazing, wonderful, beautiful, kind, just great person. If you knew this person, you would want to hang out with this person, okay? She was awesome. She served in our church. She was, uh, we had a, like a dance team and she would lead a dance team and teach these girls how to dance and she would minister to these girls. Powerful, awesome girl. But she had such a horrific story. Brokenness. Her family, her parents, her mom and just witchcraft and all this stuff. And of course, like all of our brokenness, it's a mix of stuff that's happened to us and things that we've done. And she that had this amazing husband, was this amazing person, and yet all she could see when she looked in the mirror was all the sticky notes. She was struggling to, to see herself correctly. So my friend, while she was gone one day at work, he takes the bathroom mirror down in the master bathroom and there was kind of like a, a white drywall background, like a paint outline where the mirror used to be. And what he did is he began to write all these scriptures where the mirror used to be. And he would write words of encouragement, beautiful, chosen, adopted, beloved. He wrote verses like Psalm 139, 14. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So that when she would get ready in the morning and she would go to look in the mirror, all she could see was God's word to her. 
It's powerful. And I remember thinking when I heard it, I was like, dude, like I need to take marriage advice from you, number one. Number two, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard of. And then my, my fleshiness was like, but how do you get ready in the morning? And then it dawned on me, that's the point. That's the point. How do you get ready in the morning? It's not perfect hair. It's not a great looking outfit. It's the word of God in the place where I need it the very most. In my identity. And so I just want to challenge you today to receive your true identity in Christ. I'm going to give you a, a statement. And this is, uh, Lance, I think there's a slide that's kind of a red background. That one. Here's what I want to leave you with. Through Christ, I am deeply loved, fully pleasing, totally forgiven, accepted, and complete in him. At rin-church.org slash identity, if you go there, I have an image up like this, and here's my challenge to you, is I want you to, if you just hold it down, it'll, you'll have the option on your smartphone to save the image, I want you to save it, and I want you to set it as the wallpaper on your phone for the next 28 days. Why? Because what's going to happen is you're going to think, oh, man, that was a great sermon. That was really good. I, I needed to hear that today. The problem is that you need to hear that tomorrow and the day after that 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 until it gets down in your bones. And then when you think about yourself, you don't think about all the other stuff. You think about this, the cross of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you go to rin-church.org slash identity, you'll find that image right there. You can save it to your phone. Um, Lance, let's go ahead and, and let's just go to that next slide. Let me put some teeth into this for you. Deeply loved. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of, get this, his great love, that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace, fully pleasing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. It's the concept of him taking all of, your, all of your, your issues, your sins, your mistakes, your past, all that stuff, putting that on himself on the cross and taking all of his perfection, his holiness, his, all that stuff, and putting it on you so that he could present you to the Father righteous. Jesus did that through the cross. Totally forgiven. 1 John 1.9, you probably know this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from a few of your unrighteous acts, right? No, to cleanse us from all, un, all unrighteousness, totally forgiven, accepted. 
Colossians 1.22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. You've been reconciled to the Father. You are fully accepted by your heavenly Father. Lastly, complete in him, Titus 3, 4 through 7, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of, get this, regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're complete. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with hope of eternal life. I wanted to put some teeth in that for you because this is, if we were to go back to that that slide with the red background, and if you were to take off the through Christ part and the in him part at the end, and you could say, you could put this on repeat and on your, um, on, you know, your whatever, however you listen to music anymore. I don't even know anymore. I'm deeply loved, fully pleasing, totally forgiven, accepted, and complete. No, you're not. Not without Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so... Let me close. If you're not a Christ follower, what will you look to in order to establish your broken identity? Are you basing your sense of identity, your worth, your value on other people's opinions and your performance? Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.